That was Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 24. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out, out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by, himself, by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and the servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They had now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Thank you very much, Megan. <clears throat> Great to hear the Bible read in that accent. So thank you. I'm just going to pray for us before we look at that together. Let's pray. Lord, please open our eyes so that we can see wonderful things in your law. And when we see them, we pray you would bring our hearts to enjoy, love, and be changed by these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it should be clear to you, as we've read the book of Acts, if you've been here over the last few weeks, or just if you know anything about Christianity, that Judaism, the Jewish religion, has like a very special honoured place in history. And Jesus 
was Jewish. So in a sense, Christianity is an offshoot of that great religion. But I need to tell you that I'm not Jewish. I mean, Jesus was, I'm not. So how can I, not part of that ancient faith, I don't speak any Hebrew, not something that my study has yielded any fruit of, I've never been to Israel, no one Jewish has come to me and said, yes, what you're doing here is okay, we approve of that. In fact, I would suggest they probably wouldn't approve of what I'm about to say today. How can I stand here and tell you to come and join this faith, which is rooted in Judaism, when Judaism has nothing to do with me? Well, that's really the question that Acts chapter 12 is all about. And um, we're going to start by talking about... Uh, help us think in the right way. I'm going to start by talking about horse racing. Horse racing, strange sport, isn't it? Lots of strange things about it. It used to always be on TV on Channel 4 when I was younger, and there's a strange commentary you could never hear what the person was saying. It was just like, coming up on the left side. Strange sport. And also, similar to my thoughts about the Grand Prix, when they win, I'm like, why are you jockey taking all the glory? Clearly you just had the fastest horse. Uh, it's the horse that should get the prize. Anyway, um, we have a phrase that we use in English to describe horses when they're about to uh, start the race, which is champing at the bit. That is, they're standing, they're champing, they're ready to go, they're ready to race, and they stand behind these green things, and then suddenly the gates are open, and they're off. Now, we've been following the book of Acts, the story of the first Christians and what Jesus continued to do through them after he ascended back to heaven. And next week, the next chapter of Acts, we're going to go to the races. The message about Jesus is about to explode out of the small section of the Middle East to become a world faith. That's going to happen next week. Well, happen in Acts as we read it next week. And it seemed like at the end of the last chapter we were in, everything was set up for that to go. The message has reached out beyond being like a sect of Judaism. Non-Jewish people have become Christians. The main church in Jerusalem has seen and approved of that. There's one church, Jew, non-Jew together. Antioch is the first truly non-Jewish church. And we saw last week, it really is a real church. They celebrate Jesus. They serve the poor, and next week the Holy Spirit is going to use them to send people into the world to talk about Jesus and stand up against evil and injustice. But still, they're a sort of offshoot of Jerusalem. Still, you have to go back to headquarters in Jerusalem to get approval. And that's definitely not true today. No one from Jerusalem has approved this church, as far as I know. No one in that original religion has said, what you're doing is okay. I don't know from Hebrew, and apart from Jesus, I have no connection to that ancient faith. And that's true of most churches in the world. They're in their own cultures. They're their own cultural church. They're not connected to that faith apart from through Jesus. Why is that okay? And Acts 12 is going to explain that to us. Here's the first thing that we're going to see then. That Acts shows us the gospel is free, the church is free from geography. Sorry if you're a geography student here today and you're insulted by that. I apologise. I'm sure you can throw your colouring pencils at me later. (laughs) One of the biggest things I think people in our church find challenging 
is that what I do the rest of the week, whether it's geography or something else, what I do outside Sunday and my connect group, my quote-unquote normal life, it feels very unspiritual. It feels like God isn't there. It feels like I'm not in the spiritual place to experience God the rest of the time. Well, you did used to have to go to somewhere in particular to be spiritual. You had to go to Jerusalem to find the temple where God lived. And in the first few chapters of Acts, we've seen you did need to go there to find the real church of Jesus. So even when non-Jewish people were included, that Jewish church had to approve it. But Acts 12 is a picture of saying that whole religious system in Jerusalem, the king who rules from there, the temple that's there, it's become corrupt. The time for that is finished. The door is closing. The chapter is turning the page from that bit of the story. You don't need to go there to be in touch with the real God anymore. In fact, that place has moved away from the real God. God's people, up to this point, through the Old Testament and based in the country of Israel, were supposed to be a light to the nations, displaying what the world was like. But by the time of Acts, things have changed. We find it in the first few verses. Herod, who's the ruler in, the, in Jerusalem, wants to kill Jesus' friends. So it's not a light to the nations anymore. It's miles away. By the end of the chapter, the king is accepting praise that's for God for himself. That is not what God's people were supposed to do. And Peter, the main apostle of Jesus, is first attacked, but then he's freed from that system. And the leader of it dies. The moment for that is past. We know God in a different way now. Now, I'm making absolutely no comment about Jewish people today and anything to do with like them as a group being corrupt or anything like that. It's total nonsense. We love Jewish people as our neighbours, as we do with all people. Neither am I making any comment about the state of Israel today. I don't want to wade into that particular uh, discussion. If you want to talk about it later, feel free. I will be busy. Uh, but 2,000 years ago, what should have been a light to the nations had become corrupt hating Jesus, and so Acts 12 says the door's closed on that way of knowing God now. The king is dead of that country, and Acts 13, the horses are off to the races. The gospel goes to the world. Now, of course, we must have realised, really, if we were paying attention, that that was coming. God's spirit poured out means that God is there, truly present, in the life of every Christian, not in particular geographical places. And God's Spirit is experienced through groups of Christians who all have his Spirit getting together and loving each other and proclaiming the truth. And the glorious truth of the Gospel that we've seen right from Acts 2 is that can happen anywhere. It isn't geographically limited anymore. And I think if we went around church today, I'm not going to ask to, but ask the people here who are Christians, where did you meet with God? It would be a whole range of places. It would be like, uh, you know, in a tent in a field or in a church service in, you know, Northern Ireland or, you know, it'd be a range of places. And that's how the gospel works. It's anywhere where Christians are. By the by, this probably is a lesson, Acts 12, that the state should never use its power to try and enforce people to do particular beliefs. It's not how the gospel works. The spirit 
Aliving Christians teaches people to be Christians. One of the reasons why our church is not connected to this state. And it should also be a lesson, I think, Acts 12, that it's a very dangerous game if Christians back a ruler who's immoral because he says he'll protect your faith. That's just a power play by the ruler. We don't fall for that. Herod tried that one with Judaism. But really, the main thing going on here is this picture. As Peter becomes free from being in the prison, the gospel is free to reach the world. So we have this structure in the book. The church in Antioch is being a church. That's what we saw last week. The gospel is freed from Jerusalem. That's what we see this week. Then the church in Antioch begins sending missionaries to the world. That's what we see next week. The thriving church in Antioch reaching the world. Well, what are we to make of that? Well, I think we are to say that probably a truism, most people who come to our church already believe this, that churches are not buildings. There are no holy buildings anymore. Just spirit-filled communities of people in every place and culture. And they send people to other places and churches are started. And then they send people to other places and churches are started. And God is present in all of those places. We don't need to go to any particular place to meet God. And no local church has to check with anyone else's authority to be approved as a church. These communities, these spirit-filled communities that springboard people to go and start new communities, it happens everywhere in every culture and every time. It's interesting, you'd think the way this story goes, Peter frees from prison, you'd think, oh, God must have freed him from prison because he's got some very important job to do. But after this in Acts, Peter doesn't really feature at all. He's at a meeting in Acts 15. Maybe there's a moral of a story there. You think you're being freed to do some important work. You're just going to end up in meetings. A lot of us could share that. He's at a meeting in chapter 15, but that's it. It's now Paul and Barnabas and Silas and the church reaching the rest of the world that the focus moves to. The Jerusalem church is just not the centre of the action anymore. It's why Christians have a different view of what we call pilgrimage to other religions. Other religions will say you should pilgrimage to a particular place because you will meet God there more than you meet him at home. Christians don't believe that. God's with us and lives with us by our spirit. We might do a pilgrimage to learn something or to, to you know, have a nice time with other Christians. We don't need to go somewhere to meet God. We can join in with what God's doing right here, right now, and whatever you're doing tomorrow and the next day in the place that you are, God will be there because you're there. There's no unspiritual bits of life. There's no need to bring people anywhere for, they, for them to meet God. If you're a Christian, you are them meeting God. The community is important. They will meet God and experience God more in community, but that can happen in your house or in a school hall or in a walk in the park. We're not tied anymore, but freed. The horses are galloping away to the ends of the earth. It's not the place, but the spirit-filled people who bring the reality of God. So the gospel is free from geography. That's the big picture thing going on in this story. But the detail of the story is really about the gospel being free from evil. 
In Marvel films, if you watch them, if you don't, this won't mean anything to you. Uh, in Marvel films, before you watch them, uh, the Iron Man character, played by Robert Downey Jr., just before the big battle's about to start, like just at the moment of high tension, of like, are the alien robots going to explode the world, whatever the plot is, just at that moment of high tension, Iron Man will make a joke. And that's because, I learned this in English literature at school, when people are tense and they're watching something that's tragedy and tense, there's only so far they can be stretched before it becomes too much. And so you ease the tension by a bit of humour. Well, this passage begins with, like, heavy tragedy, and then it goes via slapstick to dark humour at the end. Tragedy first. Herod, the king in Jerusalem, takes against the church. It could have been because he's heard they started saying that Gentiles can be believers, or it could just be that he sees them as a threat to his power and he wants to take them out. But his control was being undermined by the church, and so James, the brother of John, suffers a violent death by the sword, we're told. So it's a violent death. He was either beheaded or, or run through. And we just easily can skip over that, but we forget this is one of Jesus' closest friends. The close group mentioned throughout Jesus' life was sort of Jesus and James and John and Peter. And now one of them's been killed. First one of the original apostles, actually, to be killed. That was the religious authority the church trusted. Imagine their shock and their sadness and their fear. And seeing as people approved of that, Herod seized Peter too. He's an out-of-control ruler, Herod, making evil decisions in order to please the crowd and stay in power. And so now Peter, another central figure of the church, is in prison. And he's imprisoned during the feast and held to be killed coming up to the Passover. And if you've read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, that will sound like a familiar story. A public trial round the Passover is exactly how the authorities had Jesus killed. So the setup here is tragedy started and there's going to be more tragedy. Another sacrificial lamb. And it looks utterly hopeless. We're told there are four squads of four soldiers and Peter is sleeping chained between two soldiers. And remember this, the church at this point are just like a random little sort of sect of people. They have no powerful friends, they have no MP, they have no clout in the world. All they can do is pray earnestly and so that's what they do. That's the tragedy. Well then the comedy begins. An angel appears and shines light round the cell to bring Peter to rescue and Peter sleeps on. If you read the Gospel, that seems to be a character trait, actually. There's another bit in the Gospels where Jesus is like, please stay awake, and Peter's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, fine. <laughs> and it's the same thing here. And angels appear to free you. Sorry, a bit sleepy. Uh, God's doing something amazing, and the great apostle is asleep. Well, literally, the passage tells us, we have the angel struck Peter. The word is actually like punched. <laughs> the angel punched Peter to wake him up. He is not poised to be rescued in any way. And he says, quick, get up. And his chains fell off and Peter leapt to his feet and ran out of the cell. No, 
The chains fell off and Peter stood there, dozy and disbelieving. And the angel actually has to say, um, you need to put your shoes on. <laughs> that happened to us once in our family. We were in a rush to get out to school. I was in charge of school that day. And we got out of our garden gate. And one of our children said, Daddy, my shoes. <laughs> it was nearly socks all the way to school. Anyway, so Peter is the children, the child, being told to put their shoes on. Then it starts even being more like my house in the morning. The angel has to say twice, put your coat on. No, really, verse 8, wrap your coat around you, put it on. So Peter follows the angel out, basically sleepwalking, thinking he's just dreaming it. Past the first guard, past the second guard, the gate swings open, open sesame. The angel walks in the length of one street, we're told that. I guess that's because he's in such a stupor. The angel's like, if I just leave you at the gate like this, you'll just stand here till they catch you again. He's like, let's take him a street away, then he'll be safer. And then Peter wakes up and says, I love this, now I know without a doubt God has rescued me. It's like no kidding, Sherlock. <laughs> he heads round to Mary's and he knocks the door. And the servant girl realises it's him, runs in and says, Peter's here. And all the sort of Christians at the prayer meeting, so they're Christians at the prayer meeting, they're like the sort of holy ones. They're like, stupid girl. Uh, Peter's in prison. That's, you know, why we're having the prayer meeting. And uh, she comes back, her servant, and she says, really, it's definitely his voice. And they do this weird thing in verse 15 when they say, ah, it must be his angel. It's like, that is not a thing. It's not a thing that Jewish people or Christians believe, that I have, like, an angel I can project out of myself to other places to mimic my voice. But it's so unlikely God would have answered their prayer that they invent a whole new theology. Everyone's got an angel, like a ghost they can send. Well, Herod does the normal dictator thing when something goes wrong. He uh, kills some people. And then we get this weird little postscript about Herod giving out grain to people he's having an argument with. He's feeling like the big man. Everyone from Tyre and Sidon has to come from him to get their food. And they all say, basically, yes, you're like God, which just goes to show you can get people to say anything if you give them food. It's the high point of his life. People are praising him as a god, and he dies. And he doesn't just die. He's eaten by worms. So the big man can't hold a Christian prisoner with all the soldiers he's got. And his significance in the end, in the world, is that his body will feed the worms. It's dark humour. Laughing at Herod the Great. And meanwhile, while Luke says, Herod's feeding the worms... The word of God continues to spread and flourish. There's a verse in the Old Testament, in Psalm 2, which says, When people, rulers of the earth, plot against God, he laughs. And it's dark laughter, because this ruler has done a terrible thing. James has been murdered. And evil regimes, for a time, they do do terrible things. People who think they can increase their own popularity by getting rid of the word of God will do terrible things to the church, but still God laughs darkly at them. Because in the end, they're just worm food. Herod, the ruler of this kingdom, the centre of an influential religion who controlled the food supply to Tyre and Sidon, 
who probably didn't even remember the bit of trouble he had when he had to execute a carpenter. The most important person there was feeds the worms. I mean, there's a great irony here, isn't there? Most people have heard of Herod in our culture uh, because of the Christmas story. So most people have heard of Herod because of Jesus. It's great. It's like, isn't it? He does have his place in history, (laughs) but only because he's connected to the carpenter he tried to kill. What God is doing in the world is through Jesus. He continues through the church, through normal Christians who are weak and don't have much clout and can't do much. Everyone else, no matter how powerful they are, is just a footnote to that. And their significance in the end is that they will feed the worms. Now, it doesn't look like that at the time, as it didn't in Acts 12. The Christians were a small, uncool group with a few feeble prayers. They didn't even believe that God would answer. But that's what was part of what was real and lasting and meaningful. And Herod, the great ruler with all the pomp and the power and the food to give out, he's the one who ends up in a grave. I get regular mailings from a group called Open Doors who get you to pray for Christians who are persecuted in other parts of the world. And they sent a thing this recently about North Korea, where the church is just a church in constant mourning. Being a Christian, even owning a Bible, can see you killed or put in a labour camp for life. And it's like the story of James repeated millions of times, because in that country you actually have to worship the leader. And so we mourn and pray and advocate for for them and ask God to take away the darkness and evil there. But in the mailing that I got, it's mentioned, by the by, there are 400,000 Christians in North Korea. I did a quick Google. That's 2% of the population. That's probably a bigger, you know, thing than a whole lot of Western countries. And there is Kim Jong-un in his palace, thinking he rules everybody, everybody's worshipping him. And God laughs, says 2% of your population at the moment are going to live forever while you feed the worms. I remember in my youth group, we used to pray for the downfall of this terrible dictator in Europe, Ceausescu, who persecuted the church terribly in Romania. And I remember we used to pray for him, thinking he would never fall, and he did. And about five or six years after he fell, I went on a mission trip to a totally different country and met there a missionary from Romania who'd become a Christian after there was freedom to hear the gospel in that country. Isn't God laughing? That man taking everybody's praise, thinking he ruled the world. He's dead. And the gospel goes on. Missionaries all over the world from his country. And we laugh darkly at the people who think they run anything. Evil as they are, much as they may hurt and crush the church, which is a real thing, they will be worm food while people will still be worshipping Jesus. There's one story here. There is one story in history that God is always working out. People coming to worship Jesus and those forming communities of light and then those uh, propelling out more people to form communities of light. And I know 
that we only have like this uncool place which isn't even ours and our prayers are pretty feeble and everything secular looks much more impressive and they have Instagram and air-conditioned offices and political power and Acts 12 says listen that's normal but that's not the correct reading you know I would wonder if we said, if we asked people, how many people here would know who was Prime Minister a hundred years ago? I would guess probably hardly any of us. Prime Minister, that's like the most important job in the country. But a hundred years ago, people were worshipping Jesus. And a hundred years from now, billions of people will be worshipping Jesus. Who hears our feeble prayers from this insignificant school hall. Jesus said once, if you give even a cup of water in his name, he notices it. I've always thought, is that really true? In water, it's like, you know, I give out a lot of water. Jesus must notice me a lot. What he's saying is, the littlest thing you do to contribute to the only eternal story there is, is more significant than the biggest thing you do for something that's just passing. Now, I live a sheltered life. I can't imagine what it's like for many people here who work and live in situations where people are strongly against Jesus, who are in institutions like that day after day after day. Or more informally than that, just people who hate you because you're a Christian. And it's scary. You know, you feel the fear, the fear of connecting with flatmates or workmates because what they live for seems so much more real than what you're living for. And you seem so strange That's our fear, isn't it? People will laugh at me, think I'm funny. The only funny thing about this situation is jumped up people thinking that because the church is small, that they will last longer than God. That is the only humour here. And if we can join together and laugh with God at that, then we will escape the fear of being laughed at. One more thing I love about this story before we move on to the third thing. I love the great reversal in this story. The power lies with the feeble Christians praying, not with the great king. But that goes even into the church. I love the way that in the story the power lies with the servant girl whose name we get, who's presumably not even important enough to be allowed into the prayer meeting. It's like, Rhoda, we're praying. You answer the door. That's her rule. And she becomes the one who comes in and says, God's really amazing. He's done this amazing thing. That's the kingdom God is bringing against Herod's kingdom and the big kingdom where the little person has the amazing job. This is a kingdom I want to live in. So don't give your life to powerful people who exploit you, who God is laughing at. Join in laughing and be a little person and God will see you. Last thing. We briefly see, free to join in. I remember once I was at a Christian conference and the speaker, who was really very good, I have no big argument with him, but he said this thing in passing about, at our church prayer meetings, we pray for a while. And then I say to everybody, do you really believe we're going to get this thing we're praying for? And if they say no, I say, well, we're going to pray more until you really believe that God will do it. It's like sort of prayer plus the power of positive thinking. You know, the more faith we have that God will do the thing we want, the more likely he is to do it. I think lots of Christians really believe that. It's not really how it works, is it? 
in this passage. They do pray earnestly, we'll come back to that, but they definitely did not believe God would do what they wanted because when they were praying for it and it happened, they told the person who told them she was being stupid. Christians are not the heroes of this story. Peter is punched by an angel, told to put his shoes on until he's a street away from the jail. He assumes the rescue is a dream. You know, while the miracle is happening to him, he assumes God isn't doing it. I mean, that's quite an astounding lack of faith, isn't it, for the lead apostle? Now, I'm most suspicious about uh, sermons that end with the application to come to the prayer meeting. But I do want to be clear. One possible and good application of this passage is that, isn't it? Definite application to pray with other Christians. Because who knows what will happen? Many of us find we get on better doing that with others, which is why we have meetings to do it. But partly, I sometimes want to preach. We must pray, or else God won't do anything. And that, from this story, is clearly totally untrue. It's clear from this that Peter realised, the church realised, and Luke is recording, listen, God is going to do this thing. No matter who tries to stop him, No matter how slow the church, even the great apostle, are to join in. No matter how faithless they are, perhaps even too faithless to be, or too lazy, or too sad to pray, that is not going to stop God working. God is going to do this. Herod, the great king, is not going to stop him. I wonder what punch it will take to wake us up to what God's doing. But I have a question then about the Christians in this story. If they didn't really think God would do it, why were they having a prayer meeting? Well, I think they did get something very foundational, even though their belief that God would answer their prayer was weak. They realised you get to be part of the only story that matters, the only kingdom that lasts, the only kingdom that cares for the small person and raises them up. You get to build for the only thing that will outlast everything else. And the main way, you and me, we get to be part of that, we get to participate in that, is by praying. Once when we went to see one of those uh, victory parades, football victory parades that there are in Liverpool, the bus went past us and one of our children started crying. We were like, you know, this is a happy day. What's wrong? And she said, oh, when you said we were going to see the team, I thought we were going to get on the bus. (laughs) Well, Christian life is basically like this amazing victory parade. God is going to be victorious over every evil power. And he says, you can get on the bus. Come and get on the victory parade bus. It's easy, it's simple, it's a pleasure, it's a joy, it's a gift, it's an honour. Get together with other Christians and earnestly pray. God will do things you don't even believe he'll do in response to the most faithless prayers. And if miracles are needed, God will do them and include you in them by your prayers. A film I love is School of Rock, a classic film. And one of the great uh, phrases in that film is stick it to the man. Like the man is like, you know, everything bad and evil. By rebelling, you can stick it to the man. And most of us live our lives surrounded by powerful people 
who don't want to help us, whose systems hurt and crush others. And this story says those systems will be worm food in the end. And there is a way you can stick it to the man now. It's never to be rude or fight or assert our rights. We stick it to the man by gathering with other people who know God by his spirit, therefore really meeting him in the place where he lives and talk and plead and earnestly engage with our Heavenly Father. That's how we take it to the man. And the glory of Acts 12, that can happen any place, any culture, any time, anyone can get on the bus.